Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Please be seated. Please open your Bibles up to 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 24 is going to be our text tonight. The text that, uh, that John Skipworth read for us tonight is going to be the focal point of our, of our thoughts tonight. If uh, you were not here this morning, and as you're leaving tonight, uh, you're going to find out on the, uh, the greeter desk, or the welcome desk out in the family room, a, a, a small uh, packet that looks like this. It says, Faithful, up at the top, MacArthur Park Church of Christ, 2013. And it says, Faithful Student, Faithful Steward, Faithful Servant. And inside of it is a CD with a song entitled Faithful that we would like uh, for everyone to listen to this week and to learn as we begin to, uh, to sing this song as part of our theme for 2013, beginning first Sunday of the year, this next Sunday, January 6th. And uh, there are plenty of these. If uh, you're going to the back to take communion tonight because you were not here this morning and were not able to partake of it, there will still be plenty out there on that desk for you as you get ready to leave tonight. But make sure that you pick one of those up and take it home with you uh, this evening. Let's begin with a word of prayer now that our Bibles are open. Does everybody have an outline? Everybody have an outline? If you need one, please raise your hand. Richard and Jack, a few uh, guys in the back have some extra copies. There's one down here that needs one. Everybody have a copy? Man, we were 99.999% tonight. That's the best it's ever been. Well done. <laughs> Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful that you do not condemn us, but that you create in us a new heart. And that you restore oh so many blessings to us, Father, but the greatest of which is your presence. We're so thankful for all that Christ has done not only in helping us to know in practical ways how to live and ordering our steps and teaching our minds, Father, and, and inspiring us by His example, but also by, by willingly and lovingly, voluntarily, through, through grace, a, a gracious Spirit, Father, making the sacrifice that was needed for us to find forgiveness and to find our way back into Your presence through the body that was given, the blood that was spilled on the cross. We still marvel, Father, after all of these years at the, the profound depth of the mystery of that love. We never want to take it for granted, Father, because it is for us the source of everything. It opens the door to a new life, to a new way of being. We recognize this. And we pray, Father, that as we study this very passage that, that deals with the impact of that act upon our lives. It's our prayer, Father, in the name of Jesus. In His name do we pray that You give us eyes that see and ears that hear. For we seek, Father, better, deeper, clearer vision and understanding of these great truths, these ancient, ancient truths that were planned even before the creation of the world. You are so marvelous. We are overwhelmed with awe, Father, before these ancient words 
that remind us of the greatness of your bearing upon our lives. And we pray, Father, all of this with all of our heart, with love, in Christ's name, amen. It's been uh, about a month since we have been in 1 John, so by way of reminder, uh, you will remember, remember that John, the epistle, uh, in this epistle, he gives us three tests, or he gives us three ways to verify or to validate the fact that we are believers, that we are Christians. The first one is you have this experience with the gospel of Jesus who came in the flesh. Number two, you walk in holiness according to God's word. You obey his commands. And then number three, you love your fellow brothers and sisters. One of the ways that you know that the love of God is in you is in the way that you relate or the way that you you interact with other brothers and sisters. Now, uh, in this letter, you're going to find very few straight lines. Uh, it's said that when you look at nature, God doesn't like a straight line. If you look at the epistle of, of John, uh, syntactically, you see that there are not a whole lot of straight lines. In fact, what John does is repeat over and over again from different angles the same three ways of knowing and, and to be confident that you belong to God. And so in essence, what he does is help us to spiral into this confirmation or this assurance or this confidence that we are saved. And every time we bump into these, these tests, we spiral a little bit deeper down into it. And the reason that I think that John does this is that none of these validating tests or verification tests, these things that confirm that we are indeed disciples, children of God, none of these really work independently of each other. They all are, are connected. They do not function independently of each other. If you are going to walk in the way of holiness according to God's will, if you are going to obey His commands, then you're going to love your brother. And you're going to love your sister. And who is your brother? Who is your sister other than the one who has had that same experience with the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth who came in the flesh? You see how that works? All of it is, in, is interdependent. None of it is independent of each other. And a, an example of how he does this is found in a passage we looked at last month in verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, This is how we know that we are the children of God, who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does, does not love his brother. There you have it, two of the tests. Obeying the commands and loving the brothers. Very simple. There are only two ways to be in the world. You are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. Do you do what is right according to the will of God and do you love the brothers? If you think that Jesus came in the flesh, you're going to obey Him because it's God. It's God incarnate. It is God leaving the, the perfect unity and harmony and love and peace and joy and fellowship of heaven. It's Jesus Himself coming in the flesh to be like us. If that's true, then He is God and we will obey Him. And if we obey Him, then what we're going to do is we're going to love the brothers. We're going to love the sisters. We're going to love them the way that He loved us. Now here's the question. If we have these three tests, if we, we know them, we've studied them, and we, and we know that they validate our relationship with God, then the question is, why do our hearts still condemn us? 
Even though we've been believers for years and years and years, and even though we've been baptized, and we know why we were baptized, and we've repented, and we've confessed, and we pray, and we go to church, why do our hearts from time to time still condemn us? And we know what that's like, right? I mean, we know what it's like to be accused by our heart. It happens a lot. And that is precisely why we need that rest that that John mentions in this passage. So let's tackle that question. Why do our hearts condemn us? Well, number one, I think it's because we do not love as we should. We do not love as we should. I mean, that's one of the issues that John is grappling with, with this church that he's writing to in the first century. In the text preceding the one that we're looking at tonight, we know that we do not love to the extent that we should. The presence of Christ-like love is proof of the new birth. It is proof of the resurrected life. That's what he said in verse 14. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life. That's the big question, right? We know that we should, we should be deserving of death. We know that we do deserve death. We know that death is in our future. But we have passed from what we deserve to what we do not deserve, that life, that eternal life. Why? We know that that's happened. The proof of that happening in our life is because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Now we know that. But from time to time, we still feel that hate creeping into our hearts. And while we know without a shadow of a doubt that we are, without a shadow of a doubt, more loving, more generous, more affectionate than we were in the past, we are most certain that we are nowhere near the kind of love that Christ had. The kind of love that He calls us to. It is still so much easier, even after all of these years, to love those who love us back rather than loving our enemies. It's so much easier to love those that that are so lovable and so worthy of our love and the kind of people that we want to gift our love upon than it is to love those people that are really not even going to recognize the gift that they're receiving. And no one wants to make a bad investment. No one, especially in the area of love, wants to make a bad love investment. I'm reminded of the story where these two people met on an online single site. It was one of those those dating things. Uh, The guy wrote on his profile that he didn't care about a woman's looks but wanted somebody with intelligence that he could talk to. I don't know, but that didn't sound very flattering. She wrote that she didn't care about the money but wanted a man with character. And the site decided to put them together for a meeting because it believed that they had one important commonality. They were compulsive liars. (laughs) The point is that we want to find something lovely and beautiful and wondrous in someone before we invest love in them. We know that we do not love as we should. And our hearts condemn us. Because we know the Scripture. But then secondly, we're not sure that God loves us. It's really hard to give away what you do not have, right? And it's hard to dispense love, that kind of love that John is talking about, the kind of love that Christ talked about, the kind of love that spread throughout the pages of the New Testament. It's hard to dispense that kind of love when our love tank is empty. 
And the reason for so much of that emptiness is that the experience of unconditional love is pretty rare. Almost all, almost all, not all of it, but almost all of it, most of the love that we have experienced had something to do with finding something lovely in us. That experience of love was contingent on finding something worth loving in us. You'll remember the the fairy tale, the story of the, the prince who comes and kisses a princess who had fallen into a spell of deep, deep sleep. And the only thing that will wake her out of the deep, deep sleep of death is a kiss. And what is the name of that fairy tale? Sleeping, not sleeping, ugly. How do we know that the stepsisters in Cinderella are mean? They are ugly stepsisters. If you want to be saved and loved, then you have to be worthy. That's our culture. You dye the hair. You lose the fat. You get surgically enhanced. You keep hitting the home runs. You work extra hard. You work the extra hours. It's just so hard to accept the fact that we are loved by God unconditionally. Unconditionally. And that's why we need to hear this word from God that comes to us from John. Verses 19 and 20. He says, This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest. Our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. When you realize that God knows everything, that He knows everything about you, all the good, all the bad, all the beautiful, all the ugly, and you accept the fact that He loves you, and you can because God is bigger than your heart, then you can find your heart at rest. And this is how you do it. Number one, remember what God knows. Remember what God knows, which is everything. God knows everything. God knows everything. God knows everything there is to know. No, I know the first time you read that, it happened to me years and years and years and years ago. The first time that we read that truth, it actually makes us feel a little bit more condemned. But here's the thing. God's knowledge of everything is not the cause of fear, but the reason for hope. It's really just the opposite. God's knowledge of everything is not the cause of fear, but the reason for hope. Theologically speaking, God's omniscience is linked to His mercy. God knows everything. That's why He's a merciful God. He knows that we need that mercy. God doesn't have to pretend that you're something that you're not in order to love you. He knows exactly who you are and what you think. He loves you in spite of these things that you're ashamed of. He loves you in spite of those words that you wish you could take back, those, those thoughts that you wish would not keep popping into your head, those, those acts that were malevolent rather than benevolent to another person. He knows all of these things, and He loves you in spite of these things. His love 
is an extension of his nature. I mean, David sees this. The great King David, he sees this. In Psalm 33, he says, From heaven the Lord looks down. He sees all mankind. He sees all mankind from his dwelling place. He watches all who live on the earth. Now, I don't know about you. That sounds like everyone. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. Now what that means is that there is nothing that you do or think or say or feel. Our affections go awry as well. That surprises God. He doesn't, you know, gasp in surprise when you tell a lie. Are you lost about somebody? Are you lost about for, for something? And God doesn't cover His mouth in horror when He hears you speak some of the words that you say. Or roll his eyes when you have this emotional outburst that is not exactly godly. And the reason, that Psalm 33 continues, verse 18, the reason is that the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him and those whose hope is in His chesed, His unfailing love. Does God's love fail because you fail? The answer is no. Does God's love for you fail because from time to time your affections are misplaced? No. Does God's love for you fail because from time to time your actions, your emotional life, your vocabulary do not reflect clearly His presence in your life? He is chesed. He has unfailing love. And parents understand this, do they not? You know your children better than they do. You also know that from time to time they want to be better and do better than they often are and do. And the psalmist says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows, he knows, he knows, he knows. How we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God knows that we are flawed and that we fail, but He does not equate our wretchedness with our worthiness. Now, many, many years ago, close to 30, I caught my wife about to do something terrible. It was borderline sacrilegious. She was about to discard not my old high school football game jersey, but my high school football practice jersey. And fortunately, I stopped her before it went the way of my life-size Willie Nelson poster, my stuffed piranha, and my black velvet painting of the Last Supper that I bought on the side of the road in Tennessee. And it was one of the first sermons that I ever preached after getting married. <laughs> There's something intuitive in us to know how to love something that's, that's ragged and has holes in it. The same is true of God. Paul in, in Romans 5, great, great verse, 
writes, God demonstrates His, His own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. You have to silence the condemning heart that is inside of you by looking at yourself through the filter of God's eyes. Because as Paul will write three chapters later, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have to remind your heart of what God knows. And then number two, God doesn't want to move on, but to move in to your heart. The John who wrote this letter was also the John who recorded these words of Jesus. John actually was there. He heard these words of Jesus when he said, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. If I was John, I would wonder how in the world Jesus would be able to make His home with me. How would God make His home with me? How would this happen? How could this happen? And the answer comes rather quickly for John. He doesn't have to think about it for very many weeks. Pentecost rolls around when the great prophecy of Joel 2 comes into effect. And God's Spirit is poured out on human beings. And now this, this young John, this, this John who's going to outlive them all, this John who's going to see so many terrible things that are going to happen on the outside of the church in the world and inside of the church, this John knows how it would and could happen. He says it at the end of the text in 1 John chapter 3. He says, we know it by the Spirit. We know it by the Spirit that He gave us. God knew that we would struggle with a heart that would condemn us, so He sent His Spirit to overrule that heart's condemnation. Now, that doesn't mean that the Spirit is not going to convict you. And quite frankly, if you're going down a road that you shouldn't be going down, if you're walking down a path that you should be averted from, then it is a blessing. It is a gracious blessing of God to have the Spirit of God to convict you and for you to feel guilty about that and to make amends and to repent, and to change, and to go in another direction. But even so, with all of that conviction and that repentance, it does not affect your status. There's a famous heart surgeon that used to live over in Houston. His name was Michael DeBaki. He's a famous heart surgeon. And going all the way back to the 60s, in 1966... He, re he received uh, a, a question from this little African-American girl by the name of Linda Grigg. I think she lived in Pittsburgh. She wrote him about a plastic heart that he inserted into a coal miner by the name of Marcel de Ruder. And unfortunately, uh, even though the heart was taking over and actually uh, the, the, the plastic heart was doing the work of the original human organ, Mr. DeRuder died of another cause. I think it was a, uh, an embolism of some sort. But it, it, it prompted this little seven-year-old girl who's thinking about all of this to ask a question about that plastic heart. And her question was, does a plastic heart have love in it? That's a profound question. And Dr. DeBaki uh, thought, and then he responded to her letter, and he said, why, yes, 
but not the kind of love you and I have in our regular hearts. This plastic heart has more love because hundreds of people worked on that heart in order for that person not to die. You know, and that's sort of the way that it works with us. And this is how Paul would explain it in Romans 5. He would say that God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. This is how you love someone who doesn't deserve your love, who doesn't merit your love, who is not very lovely. It happens because of the experience of the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth who came in the flesh. And we can obey His commands. And we can love the brothers. You know, I still have that old jersey. I asked Ellen if she would bring it. She said, you know it has a lot of holes in it. You're not going to put it on, are you? I said, no. Old number 73. The thirstiest day of my life I was wearing this jersey. Thought I would die of thirst out there in the practice field of Bowie High School outside of Washington, D.C. I'm not sure it's, it's been washed much since those days. And uh, some of these holes seem to have appeared with age rather than because of, of hard practices. But I still have this old jersey. And it's about as ragged as a garment can get and still be considered clothing. But I love it. And I used to wear it. And I, when I smell it, I, there are things that pop into my, my head that I haven't thought about in a long time. If you saw this jersey laying on the side of the road, you'd probably walk by it. If you saw it in a a shop, you certainly would not buy it. But I love this jersey. For no good reason. Except, except to me that it's not ragged. But to me, it's priceless. And it reminds me of the way that God looks at me. Especially when my heart condemns me. Because at that point I'm feeling pretty ragged and wretched and full of holes and feeling like a failure. But then I think about how God has loved me and the testimony of His Spirit in my heart. And I'm able, as you are able, to rise above those convicting, negative, condemning thoughts and words and and, and feelings that come to us from a heart that, that is, is, is tuned not to God. But it can become tuned to God as it comes to rest in His presence. Because He knows everything. And He's given us His Spirit. Jeff is going to lead us in a song.
And if there are ways that our church can minister to you tonight to help you to overcome that condemning heart by finding your heart at rest with God because your sins have been forgiven. You've experienced the, 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 the penultimate, the, or not the penultimate, the ultimate expression of God's love in your sins being forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice. If, if there are any ways that our church can be praying for you or encouraging you, we're going to have shepherds down here at the front to talk with you and to minister to you as we stand and sing together.